All right. As we gather here today in this place, we are continuing in a sermon series on prayer entitled Boldly We Approach. I'm going to talk in just a moment why, once again, that is the title of this sermon series. We've been looking at what prayer is. We've been looking at why we pray. And then starting last week, we began discussing how is it that we pray. And we're going to continue in that vein today. But I want to ask a question. Have you ever watched someone do something and thought to yourself, I would love to know how, how to do that. There's an actor by the name of Daniel Day-Lewis, Academy Award winner. Uh, some people call him one of the, the, the greatest actors of his generation. He's a method actor, which means that he throws himself fully into his roles. Well, back in the late 90s, he took a break from acting that at first was, was kind of unexplained. Later, people discovered that where he was and what he was doing for the five years that he was away from acting. You see, being a creative type that he is, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis got enamored with making shoes. That's right. He, he wanted to become a cobbler. This man who had won an Academy Award left Hollywood behind because he, he loved the idea of making shoes. And so he took his family and they moved to Florence, Italy, where for 10 months he studied under a cobbler there in Florence. And then for five subsequent years, pretty much devoted himself to making shoes. You want to talk about dedication. He, he saw something and he thought, that intrigues me. I'd like to know how to do that. And so what he did was he went to the master. He went to somebody that could actually show him how to do it. And for five years, he spent time making shoes. Now, for, for you and me, we think, well, that's kind of, a, a, of an intriguing story. It makes sense that he would go to, to a master to know how to do something. But, but what about us? Like making shoes is kind of a, a neat thing. Um, you might say, I'm kind of intrigued by it. But, but it's not essential to life. On the other hand, though, what we're talking about today, what we've been studying as a church pertaining to prayer, that is essential. For us as followers of Jesus, to know how to pray is significant. And, and for us, though, we don't have to do what Daniel Day-Lewis did. We don't have to pick up our family and move to another part of the world. We have the privilege of learning how to do something that is so essential to our spiritual lives by simply doing this, opening our Bibles and turning to Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, we go to the master. We go to Jesus himself. For in this book are Jesus' words to us, and in this book, specifically in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus lays out for his followers the keys to how it is we as his people are to pray. In fact, in, in Luke's account of, of this, this whole section on Jesus teaching us how to pray begins with his disciples coming and saying, Lord, teach us to pray. And so when you turn to Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5, that's exactly what Jesus does. Now last week, um, we looked at the first section of this, and so I'm going to fly through it. Jesus starts by sharing with us how to pray by telling us how not to pray. He says that there are two things that we need to be careful to avoid when we engage in prayer. The first is this. You do not pray trying to impress other people. 
Prayer is about you and I communicating with God. It's not about you speaking in such a way that those around you think that you are spiritual and that God loves you a a whole lot. Don't pray in this way. That's what Jesus says in verses 5 through 6. You're not trying to make people impressed. You don't want to be a hypocrite. You don't want to be a play actor. Take the pressure off of yourself. And realize that when you pray, you're just talking with God. It's not about what other people are thinking about your words. The second thing that Jesus says on how not to pray is, do not pray trying to manipulate God into doing what you want. There was a tendency in the pagan religions of that day to to pray in a very specific way, to use certain mantras or incantations as they prayed. Because they were taught in these of false religions of that day, if you prayed in this way, if you babbled in this, this way, what you ultimately would ask of God, he would respond because you prayed the right words. Jesus is coming and saying, don't pray like the Gentiles. Don't do that. You don't have to say a magical prayer. You don't have to say certain words in order to manipulate God into doing what you want. That's not what prayer is. There's no script. There's no mantra Instead, Jesus says, starting in verse 9, instead of trying to pray to impress people or or trying to pray in a specific way to manipulate God into doing what you want, he starts in verse 9 and he says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Last week we started just looking at this first phrase and we said that with these words, Jesus changes his instruction away from how not to pray to how to pray. And the first thing that he says is that we are to address God as our what, church? Father. In fact, all the prayers of Jesus except for one that we find recorded in the New Testament, in every single one of them, Jesus addresses God as his Father. Do you know the only prayer that he prays where he doesn't address God as Father? Is when he's on the cross and he prays, My God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. It's the only time that he doesn't address him as father. And yet at the end, as he hangs there on the cross, he says, my father, into your hands I commit my what? My soul, my spirit. Jesus continually addresses God as father. And we say, okay, well, that's great for Jesus. He can address God as as his father because he is the son of God. He's come from the father to, to earth. But why on earth are we able to address God as Father? You see, Jesus had an intimate relationship with God as his his Son, but the promise of the Scriptures is if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you too, that's what we've been singing all this morning, you too have been joined into the relationship between the Son and the Father through Jesus. You and I are now adopted sons and daughters. And so when Jesus says, I call upon God in heaven as Father, so too can you. You now have an intimate and loving relationship with God because you are God's child. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that it's possible for wicked, horrible, sinner enemies of God to move out of the category of an enemy of God to those who are actually beloved by him? If it was dependent upon your work, you're measuring up to a certain expectation. It could never be done. But it's not based upon your work, and it's not based upon my work. It's based upon the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. 
He died so that we would no longer live for ourselves but for him. We've been brought into God's family. And so when Jesus begins in his address, this then is how you should pray. He says, pray, our Father in heaven. What's he teaching us here? He's teaching us to talk to God like you would, one with whom you have an intimate relationship. When you pray, you are coming to God, but you're coming to him like you would one with whom you have an intimate relationship, like a father and a child. But make no mistake, there is no earthly father who can compare to our heavenly father. Can I get an amen to that? Like even the best dad here on earth, just put him off to the side. It's not like there's a God the father and then this guy's pretty close. This father is perfect. This father is absolutely loving. This father always provides. Jesus wants us to know that we can address God as our Father because he wants us to be open and at ease when we come to the Father in heaven. He wants us to come at any time. There should be no fear in you or in I talking to God, no worrying about the words that we say and will he, will he actually receive them. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. I just want you to see this, before, this morning before we move off of this point. 1 John chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. John would later capture this for us in a very powerful way to explain the relationship with, that, he, that we have with our Father in heaven. He says these words. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. But we love because he first loved us. If you and I have been loved by God, and we know that we have, if we've accepted the work of Christ on our behalf, we've received that love, then he says, don't you see? You and the Father are one. He abides in you. You abide in him. You don't have to be afraid. You can come to him at any time. Um, one of, I think, the most iconic photos of any presidency is this photo I want to show you right here. It's a picture of JFK with John John underneath the Resolute desk. Have you seen this picture before? If you haven't, you've been living under a rock. I'm sorry. No, uh, this picture shows the President of the United States sitting in the Oval Office, the seat of power, the place where decisions are made, where countries and people's lives are impacted. And underneath the desk is the son of the President. You want to talk about access? Does he look uncomfortable, John? John, does he feel like he shouldn't be there? He feels like he should be there. His dad is the president. If that was a picture of Lyndon B. Johnson peeking out from underneath the Resolute desk as the vice president at the time, you'd think, uh, that feels inappropriate, right? Like, the vice president shouldn't be, like, underneath the desk, like, peeking out. That would feel weird. That picture doesn't, though, feel weird. That picture feels right. A son should be able to come to the father even if he's the president of the United States. Friends, 
your father is not the president of the United States. Your father is the maker of heaven and earth. He is God, no doubt, and we're going to see that in just a moment, but you can come to him. You have an intimate relationship with him. And so when you pray, talk to him. Talk to him as you would one with whom you have an intimate relationship. But there's a second part to this address that follows quickly on the heels of it. We just touched on this last week, but now we're going to see it in its completion. Pray then like this, Jesus says, our Father in heaven. Now what's going on here? Why are we to address God as our Father in heaven? Is Jesus coming to us and just wanting to make sure that we all know the place where God resides? Is he coming in a sentence saying, make sure that you have the correct address when you mail your prayers, right? Is he saying, our Father in heaven. Is, is that what it is, or is there something more? Maybe Jesus wants to rem, remind us that God is not like our earthly fathers, and I think all of those things could be the case, but I think there's something far more profound in the designation of God as our Father in heaven, and I think it's this. It's not just that simply God is not like earthly fathers. It's not just simply that that's the place where he resides, this statement, our Father in heaven, is a proclamation of God's supremacy. By acknowledging God as our Father in heaven, by speaking that in our prayers, we're addressing the fact that God is above all, is over all, is the ruler of all. It is right for us to acknowledge God for who he truly is. What Jesus is teaching us to do in this part of the address is simply this, proclaim God's greatness and majesty when you pray. When you talk to God, you talk to him and you come open and you come at ease. But make no mistake that as you talk to him, acknowledge his greatness and supremacy. Acknowledge his majesty. Proclaim it back to him. In, right, in prayer, it is right and it is good for you and I to have a time of praising God. And I think that there's a couple of reasons why it should be obvious to us that we are to proclaim the greatness and majesty of God in our prayers. First off, because it's true. He is greater than all. He is far more majestic than anything else. When we pray, our Father in heaven, we're saying that he resides in a way over all things that no one else does. You are not saying that which has no grounds in reality when you call him the greatest of all, when you proclaim his majesty and you proclaim his worth. Because here's what's true. God is worthy of our praise. It is true that he is great and majestic, but he is worthy of our praise. And when we acknowledge him in this way, when we start our prayers by proclaiming his supremacy and his majesty, it keeps us also from forgetting our place. He is our father. We can come to him at any time. But make no mistake, we don't come flippantly. We don't purely just come casually. The one who we're talking to is the maker of heaven and earth. And when you pray and when I pray, it is right and good that in our prayers, we praise him for that. We acknowledge and we proclaim back to him, God, you are our father. 
but you are great and majestic and overall. All glory and praise belongs to you. And listen, just a word of caution. We do not praise God for the purpose of getting something from him. As I said just a moment ago, we praise him because guess what? He is worthy of it. We don't want to fall back into the, okay, I'm going to praise God here at this time because ultimately I need to ask something of him. I was going to say this later, but I'll say it right now. Uh, A friend of mine, we were talking about this, and he talked about growing up in a Christian school. And in that Christian school, he's like, I remember my teachers expressly telling us that 50% of your prayer should be devoted to praise. Like, you shouldn't start asking God for things until you got through about 50% of your prayer being praise. Because, because the tendency was, if, if you didn't praise God enough, what do you think the implication is? Well, he's not going to answer your prayer. What the? I, that just doesn't... That, so, so, so we're going back to what we're not supposed to do, which is trying to manipulate him. Don't praise God for the purpose of buttering him up. We proclaim God's greatness and majesty because that's who he is. Am I right? And so we come to him and we praise him. In the first words of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus lays out the disposition that we're supposed to have towards God in prayer. But then the rest of the prayer contains a teaching that is very surprising to me. The entirety of the rest of the prayers we're going to see right now that Jesus teaches is all about us asking God for things. Depending upon how you break it down, the remainder of this prayer contains six or seven petitions. What's a, what's a petition? A petition is making a request of somebody who's in authority so that you might receive something for them. And so look at the rest of the prayer. Are you ready? Here it is. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Six petitions, six requests. Jesus at the start of the prayer is teaching us To talk to God like you would with one whom you have an intimate relationship. Proclaim God's greatness and majesty as you talk to him. But then, ask God to do things. Make requests. The remainder of the prayer is about you and I being encouraged by Jesus to ask God for this, to ask God for that. Did you know that? Jesus comes over and over again in the rest of the prayer. The the majority of the prayer is Jesus teaching us to ask God for things. Now, if you've grown up in the church like I did, hearing that, the idea that the majority of your prayer and my prayer should be about asking God for things, it feels kind of wrong. Me coming before you and saying, look at, The Lord's Prayer, Jesus says that the majority of your prayer should be asking him for things. Doesn't it just feel kind of wrong? Like even if you didn't grow up in the church, it starts to make God feel like a genie in the bottle. (laughs) We're going to come to him in prayer. We're going to ask things of, of him. 
I go back to my friend's statement of, of growing up in, in a Christian school and feeling like, no, 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 you don't start asking God of things until you get to the 50% mark. Like now with iPhones, that'd be easier, right? You pull it out, you hit the timer, you're like five minutes and Jesus, I really want this. Jesus, I really want that. You got five minutes to pray those things, right? Like how do you figure that out? So what's going on here? I want you to hear me. I'm not saying that our prayers should not contain praise to God or should start with praise. But if we're being honest with the text and the prayer as Jesus presents it, you can't avoid the fact that the majority of this text contains petitions. And it's not just this prayer. Test me on this. I would love somebody to do it. Please, please do. When you look at the majority of the prayers in the New Testament that are prayed by the disciples, by the apostles, those prayers in the majority of the New Testament and in the epistles are always about asking God to do things. In fact, the majority of Jesus' prayers as recorded in the Gospels, the majority record Jesus asking God to do things. For instance, one time a little boy brought the bread and the fish and Jesus gave thanks and asked God that God would ultimately manifest his glory through the action of what? Feeding the, the 5,000. Jesus, even in the garden, said, Lord, if there's any way that this cup would pass from me, please let it, but not my will, yours be done. We see this over and over again in the prayers of Jesus and the prayers of the disciples. In fact, church, if, if you're on the fence of feeling awkward about asking God for things, write this down. I don't know if I made it in your notes. Luke 18, 1 through 8. Jesus has an entire parable. I don't have time to go through it today. He gives an entire parable that starts this way. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And then that parable is about a judge and a widow and a widow who comes to a judge over and over and over and over again, going to the judge, asking of the judge over and over until he finally relents and gives the widow what she wants. Did you know that your Father in heaven wants you to ask of him to do things? Sometimes we in the church get so focused on the idea of praising God that we lose sight of the fact that when we actually come to God and make requests of him, it is also an act of praise. See, I think that there are two very profound reasons why we are to come and to ask God to do things, why the majority of the Lord's prayer is to ask of God to do things. And the first one is illustrated in this way. This is a jar of peaches. Right before I came up here, I was back in the sound booth, and I'm like, oh, I forgot my jar of peaches. And the guys in the sound booth are like, what is he talking about? I said, no, look, and I took these peaches out of my little backpack. You see, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you have a jar like this, and you start to try and open the jar, and you just, you, you can't do it, and everybody's there waiting for you to open the jar, and you're trying, and you're trying, and you can't open it. You realize you're not going to be able to, so then what do you do? You turn to somebody else, and you say, could you open this for me? Who likes doing that? Especially the guys here, right? Nobody like, they like it. Like if you have a child in your home and you're like struggling and then the child's like, here, give me that. And they're like, pop, you know, and they open it right up. You're like, darn it. Why don't we like to ask people to help us to open up a jar? 
I think the fundamental reason is because it shows our what? Weakness. Do you know what happens when you ask God of things? What you're doing in that moment is you are proclaiming your weakness and his what? Power. This is why it is right and good to ask things of God. Because as we ask of him, we are proclaiming our weakness and his power. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 and 9 says this. I'll just quote verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. When you ask of God, what you're doing is you're showing his power and you're showing your weakness. You're coming like you would and saying, I got something here that I can't deal with. Another dear friend of, me, of mine last week, we were having our connection group. We were talking about, what are the things that you have a hard time asking God for? And he said, I'll be honest with you. I'll tell you I have a hard time asking God for. The things I have a hard time asking God for are the things that I think I can do. He's like, I know that's not the spiritual answer, but that's the human answer. And I said, amen to that, right? So often we hold things back because we think we have a power in us to bring something about. And yet Jesus is saying, come and bring all of these things to God. You know why? Because you are weak. Because you have no power. Power, all of it, belongs to God. And so what changes us to be a people who come and bring everything before him is recognizing, as the Apostle Paul said to the Ephesians, when he prayed his beautiful prayer, he said this, now to him, this is Ephesians 3, 20 through 21, now to him who's able to do far abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. <gasps> Amen. Paul says, don't you see... When we go to God, we're going to the one with all the power. You're proclaiming your weakness. You're, you're keeping yourself in the right position. But then here's the second thing. You see, when we go and we ask God of things, here's why we ask. When God answers, the glory's his. When God answers, the glory's his. That's part of the reason why we don't like passing the jar off to somebody else to open. You know, if you're at a party and everybody's waiting for you to open that thing and then somebody else opens the jar, nobody's looking at you saying, hey, thanks. They're looking at the person who opened it. They're like, yay, look at they opened the jar. Meanwhile, you're in the corner thinking, oh, I'm, I'm a weakling. When you pray and when I pray, whatever it is, the more we ask of God as we come to him, when we see prayers answered, you and I are able to hone in on something that remains true whether or not we realize it. That is, to him be the glory both now and forevermore. When we ask of God and when he answers, no matter ultimately what the answer is, the glory is his. Whenever we as his people come to God and make our requests known, ultimately we should see it's an act of worship. You are engaging in worship when you ask of God and make your requests known. I don't think we, we realize this enough that when we ask of God, when we make our petitions, sometimes we're, we're taught, I, and I felt this at times within the church, we can't go to God, we can't ask those things, we gotta make sure that we're praising him enough. Asking him 
to do things in your life or on behalf of others should be viewed by you as falling on your knees before him and saying, I'm weak, you have all the power. I'm bringing the smallest things to you because I don't control any of it. Do you see your petitions as worship? Jesus in this prayer goes through all of these things that we are to ask of God because making your requests known is to be an act of worship. Do you know it's actually pride, not humility, that keeps us from making our requests known? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The humble person is the one who comes and makes requests known to God. And answer the question, how are we to pray? Broadly speaking, we are to ask. Ask God to do things. Make requests. But if you read this prayer carefully, as I hope you, you and I would, did you notice that Jesus is very specific in the order and in the content of what we're to ask of him? Jesus is very specific in the order of the requests that we make to God. Notice the first three things, and we're just going to consider these very quickly, that Jesus asks for in this prayer. They are, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Church, what's unique about each and every one of these requests? They're not statements, they're requests. May your name be hallowed. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. What's unique about each and every one of these requests is that these petitions have to do with who? God. And specifically, they're about asking God to be even more glorified and honored in our world than he is currently. Jesus says, you want to know what you should be asking for in prayer? Ask for that which would lead to God receiving more glory. What are we ultimately to ask? Jesus says, here's a model in your prayers are you asking God? Are you making requests of him? Are the first requests you're making of him requests that have to do with him receiving more glory? Jesus is not simply teaching us what to pray, but what we should prioritize in our prayers. The first petition, hallowed be your name. When's the last time you busted out the word hallowed in your daily vocabulary? Outside of the Lord's Prayer, have you ever used the word hallowed? Probably not. We, we don't even fully comprehend what it means until we recognize that to hallow something means to make it holy or to consider it holy. Therefore, when Jesus says, pray, hallowed be your name, what he's saying is this. May all people come to know you as God in all of your majesty and holiness. The thing that should consume your prayers, he says, the thing that you should start with is a desire to see all people in all places recognize God for who he truly is. 
that all men, that all women would know God and worship and revere him. This makes perfect sense when you understand that God's ultimate goal in everything that he does is to display his glory, the awesome greatness of his worth. Even you and I were created as image bearers, meaning that we were to reflect the glory of God, his manifold perfections in the world. And so Jesus is saying, when you pray, do you pray, God, I am asking you that wherever I am, whatever I am doing, that through me, people would see your greatness and your majesty, would, would, would understand your supremacy, that, Father, in my life, in the life of those around me, Lord, help us to see you for who you truly are. God does what he does to show the manifold perfections of who he is. Our deep desire should be to see that take place. And do you know why we should want to pray this prayer? Because the human heart, your heart and my heart, is continually slouching towards idolatry. We seek to have other things fill the God-sized vacuum in our hearts. We hallow other things. We live for other things. This is a prayer, this is a petition to God that we would live for nothing else but for, for His glory. I'm here to tell you today, I have seen in my life, and I know that you have seen in yours, those who have made it a pursuit in their life to live for the glory of things other than God, who have made at the center of their life things other than God, its jobs, its relationships, and when you hallow something more in your life than you hallow God, it leads to depression, it leads to anxiety, it leads to anger, it leads to frustration. Jesus is actually coming to us and saying, you should want to pray this prayer because if God answers this prayer, you are realigned in your life. Hallowed be your name. It's why then the next petition is very simply this, your kingdom come. This is you and I asking God for two things. With the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God was inaugurated here on earth. Christ, we, it was in our memory verse for today, for this month. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus is reigning on his throne right here, right now. And so to pray for God's kingdom to come is to ask God for the gospel of his kingdom to go forth throughout the entire world. It's a call to mission, but it's also a petition. It's a petition for Jesus to return in all of his glory. He came once. Is he coming again? Let me ask that one more time so I can get, a, get an answer to that. Jesus came once. Is he coming again? Yes. The first, <laughs> the first time, he, he is, trust me, he is. He came once to save he comes next as ruler. And when he comes a second time, heaven and earth will join together, Revelation tells us, and there will be no more tears, there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering. Everything that has been stained by sin 
will no longer be stained by sin and he will make all things new. I don't know about you, but I long for that day. I long for the day when his kingdom will be known in its full expression. You and I today are saints who get to begin to live out that newness of life. You and I have a power within us to say no to sin and to say yes to God. Do you believe that to be true? Like sin, you're no longer a slave to sin. You and I know what it's like to have Jesus as king. The rest of the world doesn't yet know that. And so when you pray your kingdom come, we're inviting God to make his rule and reign known through his people and that men and women would enter into that kingdom. Your kingdom come in its full expression. And then finally, he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, there's two wills of God that are talked about within the scripture. There's his sovereign will. His sovereign will, which is, Everything that God has ordained will come to pass. God's sovereign will does not change. Are you tracking with me? So he has a sovereign will, but then he also has his preceptive will. That's his will that's expressed in his precepts, in his laws, in his decrees. It is what, how God desires humanity to function within his world. God's sovereign will can never be thwarted. But today, we see clear examples that his preceptive will, what he commands, can be disobeyed. And so when Jesus says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, guess what? God's preceptive will is being perfectly obeyed in heaven. God's preceptive will is on full display. We're not praying here, God, I really hope that your will will come to pass for this or that. No, 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 no. What God has ordained will come to pass. What we're praying for when we pray, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, Lord, would men, would women, would they live according to your way? Would we no longer forsake your laws? May we no longer forsake your path, but may we go where you have called us to go and may we obey as you have called us to obey. I'm telling you, the most beautiful place in all of the world would be the place where God's people are living out his perceptive will. When we are loving our neighbor as ourselves, We've seen in our very own country within the last year the turmoil and strife of, of people against one another, speaking and acting in ways that would go contrary to the will of God. And so Jesus is saying, you and I should be active in prayer to see his will lived out by all people. It starts by praying for yourself in that regard and then praying for others. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Church, it begins our prayer lives. Before we start asking for the things as we are going to see next week for ourselves, our prayers as we engage in intimate communication with God, as we start to ask things of him, the very first things that we're to ask are things that pertain to giving him more glory. Because, guess what? The more glory that God receives, the more good you and I receive. The more that we walk in his ways, the more we know the grace and mercy that abounds to us. Some people have said, Dave, 
If we pray in this way, as you're telling us, if we're supposed to come and just to ask gods of things, it, it, how, how do we avoid making him a genie in the bottle? You avoid making him a genie in the bottle when you realize that the first petitions you are to make are petitions that pertain to making much of him. When I was a, a kid, I was driving down the road. I was 16 at the time. I had a plum and gray colored Taurus. It's a spectacular car. <laughs> Got all the girls. Um, <laughs> my former tutor is here. He knows that's not the case. Um, <clears throat> we would drive this plum Taurus. I remember the one day, um, something happens to a car when you hit a curb. <laughs> Do you know what happens to cars when they hit curbs? It, you hit enough curbs. Um, you, can, you can pop a tire but the car eventually goes out of alignment. Now, I didn't know this. I was young. I was learning to drive a car. Yet, do you know one of the ways that you can tell if your car is out of alignment? I'll tell you how I discovered that was the case. One way is that your car, as you take your hand off the wheel, begins to drift. I was going down the 15 towards the mall, uh, heading south, and took my hands off the wheel of the car for a moment, and and quickly the car began to go into the other lane. I began to put on the brakes to stop what was happening. I discovered the second way that you notice a car is out of alignment. <laughs> the car begins to do something. You know what it does? <laughs> because it's out of alignment. When I consider what Jesus is doing for us here and telling us how to pray, he says, you want to know if you're in alignment with me? Today, if you want to know if you're praying and asking for God the things you should be asking, do your prayers contain a desire to see God glorified and manifested? You're not going to drift, but if you are drifting, the way to tell is, does my prayer to God, who's allowing me access to his throne, have anything to do about making much of him, about seeing my life and other people's lives aligned with his plans and with his purposes. Here's what I would invite you to do this week, church. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Are you a new creation? Can I get an amen to that? Amen. I wonder if you would join me in a challenge this week. Would you take time this week in your prayers and focus your prayers on the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer, would you pray that God would make his glory known in your life, that his name would be hallowed through you, that through the way that you engage with others, God, would you, would you allow people to see your glory and your majesty? Lord, your kingdom come. Would my life this week, Lord, would you help me demonstrate that my life is ruled by you, that I live according to, to your ways, that you are my king, that there is nothing else in my life that has supremacy other than you. Your kingdom come and let it start with my life being a manifestation of it. Would you pray that every day and would you pray, oh Lord, may I walk according to your will that there would be evidence in my life that you are the one who is my king, that I submit to. I wonder what would happen in your life, in my life. Do you, let me just ask, do you think that's a prayer that Jesus wants to answer? <laughs> I guarantee it is. I guarantee it is. 
And so let us with great confidence boldly approach his throne. Let me pray that for us right now. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, you love us. You care for us. You invite us to make requests of you. And you know that the greatest need that we all have is to not live for ourselves, to not give in to the idolatry, Lord, that is so susceptible in our hearts and minds. And so, Father, I pray. I pray for myself. I pray for this church family, Lord. Hallowed be your name. May, Lord, we live for your glory. May, Lord, we as your people make much of you. May our actions, may our behavior this week be given to that, Lord, which would let the world see that you are majestic in all your ways. Oh, Lord, would your kingdom come. Lord, would we demonstrate that we serve a king that's not of this world. May, Lord, we demonstrate that despite what happens around us this week, whatever happens within the politics of the, of the world, of our nation, that at the end of the day, we bow the knee to no one but you and that we have great confidence that you are reigning and on your throne. And so to that end, Lord, we pray that your will would be done. We pray, Lord, that we might live lives of obedience to you and that the world, Lord, would turn away from sin and to you to know you as the king and to know you as the intimate father. And so, Father, we ask this. We pray for these things through the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and the righteousness that he alone has and has been imputed to us, we ask. And all God's people said, amen and amen.